So I'm here with Matt Higgins. He's a former shark on Shark Tank for two seasons, Harvard Business School teacher, worked for some of the biggest companies in the world like the New York Jets. He's the CEO and co-founder of RC Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in early stage companies. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the best New York, best, New York Times bestselling author of the book, Burn the Boats, a self-help guide to abandon self-doubt and to commit fully to your goals. Matt, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Wall Street Journal, but close. It's uh, I actually <laughs> for Wall Street Journal anyway. <laughs> nice. I like it. All right. I, I'll take that. I'll take that one. Yeah. Uh, Matt, man, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I've, I've watched so much of your, so many podcasts with you on it. And like, obviously I've watched a lot of like Shark Tank and I, I know a lot about you. I've done a lot of research and, you know, people might look at you and say, you know, it's uh, just a, just another guy from New York. No big deal. Just another rich guy. Like, you didn't come from a privileged background, like, and you've accomplished so much. Can is there a way you can like talk through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, no, you're right. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote the book, uh, part of it is uh, I'm on a mission, but also in terms of we all get to decide how we show up in the world. And as somebody who has been through a ton to get here, I find it way more interesting to talk about where I came from than the byproduct of my hard work and hopefully use that as a case study and an inspiration for those people who feel like the die is cast. So very quickly, grew up in Queens, uh, grew up the product of a single mom, uh, grew up uh, really in dirt poverty, uh, like uh, eating government cheese from the USDA and selling flowers on street corners and selling handbags at flea markets and just hustling. And uh, my mother was had a whole series of um, disabilities that compounded over time. And um, I, I literally had to architect my way out of poverty. And I did it by burning the boats. Um, I didn't have language for it. You know, when you're a kid and you're operating on intuition or anyone out there who is trying to scratch their way out of a terrible situation, you don't necessarily have language and you're operating more on, on intuition and instincts. And that's what I did. And so uh, in order to get myself out of that situation, I came up with a hack inspired by my mother who didn't have any education, but as an adult went back to, went to college by getting her GD first. I decided if I could drop out of high school at 16, get a GD, I could enroll in college earlier. Why did that matter? Not because I was Doogie Hauser or some little prodigy kid. It's because um, if you're a college student, anyone out there listening to this knows your, your income power is 2X of a high school student. And so I was like, I need to be a college student as soon as humanly possible. And uh, where the burn the boats comes in is when I first came up with this crazy plan, everybody, of course, said it was out of my mind. And I, um, I realized I'm going to um, eventually submit to all this social pressure to conform, even though my instincts tell me the worst thing I could do right now is actually continue to go to high school because I could tell my mother's health was fading. And so I sabotaged my education, failed every class, but for typing. Um, and, I, uh, and, I, and I ended up going through with the plan. I dropped out of high school when I was 16, got my GD a couple of weeks later, enrolled in Queens College. And that set in motion a very Forrest Gump-like career. And what I believe is, you know, the Matrix moment when he stops, Absolutely. The when he like does that. <laughs> I think I like everything slowed down. Remember when he's like, they're trying to convince him he's the one. Not yeah. that I am the yeah. one, but yeah. I wish, you are the one. Man. No, I wish I was Neo, but <laughs> I will borrow from Neo's brilliance. Um, I, it was a moment when the bullets sort of slowed down, and I was like, wait a second. If I constantly put myself in situations where I don't have the answer perfectly. Um, mapped out, there's, I will be able to summon an extra level of commitment that will enable me to get to these extraordinary places. And so once you do it once, you burn the boats once and you're like, oh, damn, 
like that worked. Now I'm in high school. Now I'm on the, now I'm in college. Now I'm on the debate team. Now I'm, now I'm, now I am. And, uh, and I decide to tie that all together. We can get into it, into this book, burn the boats, which is a, a basically not a blueprint because it's not written in a prescriptive, like, let me lecture you. It's a, it's storytelling narrative to inspire you that the, that on the other side of your drudgery and plan B is a path to achieve your plan A, but it requires total complete surrender to your true purpose. Yeah, that is amazing. That's a, I love the message of your book. So I'm a big fan. I read it already. Uh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, absolutely. My pleasure. So you're basically saying your career and your book was all a uh, culmination of what your mother basically taught you this hack for life. Yeah. And I don't think she taught me per se, as I am. Um, I talk about this in a book. It's actually, it's, 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 I tried to put words to this idea of what does it take to have an insight that can be worth, you know, millions or at a minimum your freedom. Like, where do you find these insights? And I, I call them proprietary insights. They're insights that are born um, based upon your personal experience, where you live, where you grew up, what you see, maybe your crappy go- job that you discount, but within that job, you see a better way of doing things, right? My my first proprietary insight was being actually around my mom who didn't have any education, and yet I watched her get a GD and then she went to college. That's what made me think like, wait, why don't I do what she did inadvertently because of her circumstances? She didn't have an opportunity to get an education. Why don't I do that on purpose, but achieve the same result, only achieve it earlier? So. She inspired it, but it is it is the first illustration in the book of this broader idea of proprietary insights. I believe that everybody listening right now has within that within their life um, an insight that could either lead to a new company or a new promotion or move them closer to their goal, whether it's personal financial freedom, whatever the hell it is. And I and I, in the book, I try to show this idea of proprietary insights and how it plays out. So to give a simple example, I always use Airbnb, right? Here's some kid, Brian Chesky, sleeps on a futon in 2009 and has this insight of like, I think other people might want to rent this crappy couch. And like, now I would never have thought that. I think people are going to steal my shit. Yep. But he, he had his own insight, right? And then now it's a hundred billion dollar company, not an invention like what Shark Tank teaches you. And then I have this woman in the book, Michelle Cordero Grant, who worked at Victoria's Secret and she did their marketing. She was a VP of marketing, but she kept feeling alienated from her own work product, saying like, our marketing seems to be a highly sexualized view of what what men think women should look like, but not necessarily what women. Maybe there's room for a a woman focused or a brand. And she launches a company called Lively that she sells for a hundred million dollars. And so I, I, I want, I, I want to demonstrate through the course of this book, this point that all of us have within us, this a proprietary insight that we might be overlooking because we devalue our own stream of data that, you know, runs through us every single day. I wonder, like you say, everybody has it in us, right? So why, what is the thing that's holding most of us back that they don't take this like, this ultimate risk and like get rid of the rest of your, you know, your defocused. Cause you know, a lot of, a lot of people are like running a mile a minute, like literally, literally focusing on like five or six things. They're, they're making excuses of why they don't focus on that one. Yeah. You know what well, I mean? It's that one yeah, thing. No, I agree. Well, there are a few reasons. Like let's, so let's, let's set aside the people who don't want to, right? Like I'm very sure. content. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't sure. want that, but let's, let's only talk to the ones who do. There are these different, I've seen recurring face uh, fact patterns. I try to address in a book 
um, um, generally that I find hold people back. One of them is this bias towards incrementalism, right? We are led to believe that in order for us to have permission to the next thing, we must do the last thing that immediately precedes it and forms a logical sequence. In other words, if I want to create my own, you know, VC firm, I first have to have been number two at someone else's VC firm. Before I got to be number two, I had to be a director. Before that, I had to go to a top Ivy League school, right? Like there are these rules and the reason why they are, and not to be all, all, all Oliver Stonish, because it's more subtle than that, but um, the people in positions of power want to organize things efficiently. And that's why we have titles and corporations. If you work at a, you know, a lawyer for eight years and use a highlighter in a basement, you get to be a partner one day, right? Like you are, you're let in. And so um, our parents passed down these rules, our institutions reinforced these rules. Same way with me when I decided I was going to drop out. The people whose entire job it is to prop up the system, of course, they're going to reflexively be repulsed by that. Like, no, Matt, you need a high school degree. And so I think that's one. It's a bias towards incrementalism instead of what I call a step change. Another one, very important, which for me was important, is um, lack of a sense of belonging slash imposter syndrome slash shame. So I grew up in abject poverty. So first time I ever went on the set of Shark Tank and I'm with Mark Cuban, like I felt like he could see right through me to that kid in that Roach Motel. You know, so we wow. a lot of us self-select out of ambition because we feel the die is cast by either a bad decision I made, by the my upbringing, you know, and, and if you think about who puts you in a box, is it your boss or is it you? Is it your spouse or is it you? We we put ourselves in a box. Very little is there. Very 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 rarely is someone else truly the agent of our oppression. We are the own agents of our oppression. And so, the word boat in my book is a metaphor. Uh, it was used literally back in Cortez and yeah, back I remember. In, That's I'm, where I knew it from. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, but actually, ironically, he had just a better marketing campaign because the, <laughs> because, uh, because the uh, it actually predates him dramatically. In fact, it has way more of an Asian origin. Wow. Uh, there's a there's a battle, an epic battle in 206 BC in China, uh, where literally burned the boats, killed a hundred thousand of the enemy too, buried them alive. Not a good story nice. either. But but, uh, but 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 nonetheless, my my, my point is. The, um, the way I'm using the boat is not in a militaristic, jingoistic, burn the boats and screw everyone. It's quite the opposite. I'm trying to speak to the people who are risk adverse, who self-select out of ambition because they have not burned the things that are holding them back or that are calling them back. And for me, this little seemingly pagan symbol on the cover of my book is not, not that at all. It's a, uh, it's a paper boat in a child's bathtub. And that was the boat that I needed to burn, the boat of the stigma of shame and poverty that would hold me back. For others, it's anxiety. It's like I'm an anxious person and I need a backup plan. So now big, big picture, what's my mission with this book? We, as parents, uh, when you have kids, you you hand down to them the simplicit message that it's not safe, it's not safe, you need a backup plan. And what science and studies show that when you actually tell somebody else that they need a backup plan, what they say consciously here, you don't trust me. You don't, you don't believe I can pull it off. And we do this to our kids unwittingly and it's because we think we're protecting them and what we're really doing is undermining them. And so part of my mission with the boat, the book is to say, for those who self-select out of ambition because you are, quote, not a, not risk takers, where we're all risk wanters, we're just some of us feel like we're not risk takers. There is a system to process risk at the beginning of the journey before you fully commit that if you go through that process like I do each time, you will steal yourself for the journey so that you're not looking over your shoulder the whole time. So the book, Big Picture, tries to prove historically, scientifically, psychologically, and through case studies, that actually having a backup plan that you're holding at the same time as your planning is the very reason why you are stuck.
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely read about that plenty of times in other situations too, or if you have a plan B, you know, you're really not going to succeed in plan A. You should never really actually have a plan B. It should be, your plan B should be to prop up plan A. It just keep well, right. And people up. will say to me, so this is where the argument falls apart or people try to, which I love this debate, right? Like, oh, Matt, but that doesn't make sense. That's a, the, uh, the definition, you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again when it's not working. I was like, well, that's not what I'm saying. Right. Actually, I'm saying you burn the boats for goals, not tactics. Exactly. Oftentimes when I hear a person who's got a business they're pursuing, and it's just like a stupid idea or it's a losing idea or it's not worth their time. They hold on to it so desperately because they think that's their plan A, plan A without without zooming out. I'm always zooming out. Be like, is that business really your plan A or was your plan? What was your plan A freedom? Your plan A was to tell your boss F you or your plan A was to leave a better life for your kids because you grew up in desperate circumstances like most people's plan A is not the tactic of a manifestation of a business or an idea. It's actually the broader goal, but because they don't they don't have this framework, they hold on so desperately. So when people reject it to me, that's one reason. Well, you're saying keep keep staying at it. I'm like, no, no, no. Be rigid in your vision, be rigid in your why, but definitely flexible in your tactics and your execution. So make it broad enough. Um, but 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 also number two, the um I I'm not saying don't process risk. I process risk all the time. What I'm saying is by simultaneously holding the thought here of the backup plan and your plan A, always being like, all right, if if this meeting goes shitty today or the investor won't write the check, I'll just go do the plan B. That's what I'm talking about. And when you go through your risk process and we can go through the four questions I ask, then you won't do that. And why does that matter? Because studies show that merely contemplating a plan B while you're trying to pursue plan A takes enough energy away from the heroic effort you need to achieve your outlandish dreams. Just that energy leakage is enough to one, ensure that um, you're less likely to achieve it, but also um, it saps your motivation. And the reason why we actually conjure a plan B is not out of prudence, it's to relieve the psychological pain of wanting something so effing bad. That is actually what's, it's, it's called it's psychological relief, not prudence. And here's why, if I ask anybody, all right, if whatever it is you're pursuing, you want to be the next Taylor Swift or you want to be the next Messi, whatever your dream is, right? If that doesn't work out, what are you going to do? Within sec- seven seconds, they will be able to tell me the soul-killing job they will take at X <laughs> amount of hour that they have no doubt they can get. Because every one of us, if we have bold dreams, we are capable of protecting the downside enough to get three square meals a day. And that's the part where I go to parents. I'm like, why are you telling your kid like you need to you need to be an accountant? You don't think they're going to figure out once their life strips them of all their happiness and joy, <laughs> the shitty job they need to take? Like, if you ask me, I know if I everything falls apart tomorrow, I'm like, all right, I know what I'll do. You know, I guess I got to go take that bar exam. <laughs> nice. No offense to lawyers. God bless you. I love no, that. Of course. I don't want to be you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree. You know that it's funny that uh, I have a lot of friends. I'm drinking a diet coke because I want to immortalize this. Should this oh, be? Oh, that's great. I'll be in the black market. This might be one of our last diet cokes that we may. I honor you. I honor What's you. going on with diet coke? What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly, aspartame. <laughs> are they canceling aspartame? Are they really? Oh, no. they are. Yeah, I don't know. Is this diet coke have aspartame? I think it does, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I if I was going to drink a soda, it would no, no, it has it. It's in here. It's in here. Yep. I'm literally. So, you, know, this is like, you and I were bearing a time capsule right now. Remember the days? <laughs> no, he has no teeth. You, know? nice. <laughs> you can put nice. a penny in it, it'll, it'll rot. You know? But anyway. <laughs> You're hilarious. You're hilarious. Uh, so it's really, you have a really fascinating take on life. And it seems like, like to me at least, and you're like super like passionate and like positive about this. And I, and I remember watching you on Shark Tank and I'm like, 
how like i always thought like sharks could i I know they're obviously playing to the camera things like that you were like the nicest shark i think i I, that was ever on shark tech you were like genuinely kind you gave like amazing feedback and you were just like a good person i was like this is how shark tank should be right here like i don't understand i love you saying that because they they, the best piece of advice actually kevin o'leary gave to me is like don't try to be one of us be you don't try to be an amalgam or i don't because most guests be like which shark am i yeah. And uh, the iron, the producers do the opposite. Like there's no attempt to make you anything you want. I'm, I, um, I appreciate you saying that. I wasn't sure who I am would come out. And I feel like it did in the show, which is amazing. You don't get a lot of hits to make it come out over, you know, a couple of seasons, but I do feel like I was able to be my authentic self. Yeah. It was really cool. I like the way you, uh, you handled a lot of those conversations and things like that. So how, how did you get into that situation? Like, how did you even, how did that even come about? So back to the burn the boats thing, and yeah. it's a combination of a couple of principles. Let me let me let me let me um, let me try not to make this too you know abstract, but uh, it starts with the with the simple question I ask myself um, at least once a week, maybe more, and it's borrowed from a zoning context. You know this because you read the book, but for those who haven't, um, it's the highest and best use in zoning. They um, the the goal of zoning is to ensure that a piece of property doesn't sit fallow or or underutilized as life changes. And so there's this highest and best use to make sure that each piece of land is put into production for its current context. So a a a warehouse in Tribeca, which was a slaughterhouse to kill cows in 100 years ago, is now I always joke, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio's bachelor pad, right, or whatever. Like <laughs> like so, I treat myself like a piece of land. And I apply the same rigor of a zoning analysis to myself every week. And I say, what's the highest and best use of Matt Higgins now? So why is that important? Because it ensures that you're constantly um, leveling up, that you're constantly reassessing what are you capable now that you weren't capable before, because we are iterative little creatures, right? And so every new experience that I do enables me to go a little bit further. So back to Shark Tank, I love the show. I bond with my son and, um, and I was watching one time and he always got a kick out of Kevin O'Leary's royalty deals. And I was like, it's not real, by the way, like in real world, people aren't giving you you know, 5% <laughs> on there. But we were sitting together one time and I was like, you know, dad could be on Shark Tank. Like I'm a shark. And he was like, yeah, right. There's no application on the internet. I have a wonderful agent named Reed Bergman um, who ended up actually working uh, for Gary and I at our, at our agency, VaynerMedia. And he was like, you you have what it takes to be a shark. And actually, I don't talk about this a lot. Martha Stewart was the first one to plant the idea in my head. We were on a panel together years before. And Martha finishes like, you are so good. You should be a shark on Shark Tank. You have what it takes. So I owe Martha Stewart for the planting this very grandiose idea in my head absurd. But then I worked for a year of my life and people who love to bullshit be like, I didn't try to get on. They called me. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, they, 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 you didn't you didn't do any work. You didn't go to rooms in L.A. and and, and have to completely compromise your self-respect. To, you know, like whatever. But anyway, there were multiple sessions of that meeting with different people. Sony owns the show. ABC is a constituent. Anyway, it took a year and then I got and I got on and I talk in the book about all the different vulnerabilities I had to overcome to put myself out there. I was 50 pounds overweight. I have terrible posture. So I put a buzzer on my neck to make myself sit up because I was worried I would slouch in the chair and my stomach would hang out. I know that. I had I know that. <laughs> but anyway, I share all those little cringy details to show like, you know, it'd be, if you watch me on the show and I say this as a product, not self-aggrandizing, but to make the point, you might think I was a natural at it, right? I'm a communicator. Absolutely. Right. But I was like, if I that's I'm all I'm doing is a disservice to anybody who saw the episode because they're like, well, that's not me. But if you read in the book, you're like, 
man, that's a total like head case. He was like, he was freaked out the night before he was going to pretend he had food poisoning. You know, I'll tell the whole story about imposter syndrome. Wow. That's, that's yeah. useful. That's, and I wouldn't say to anyone out there, if you perpetuate the fraud that when you reach a certain level of success, you have all your shit figured out, you are, you are, you are not making good use of your success. The better use of your success is to pull back the curtain and show that humans progress and regress. And I often say I wrote my book, so I would read my book. You know, my my book is my accountability partner. It's an act of commiserating with the audience and the reader. It's not an attempt to sort of hand that down. So that was a long way of saying how I got on Shark Tank. But it, it's about that simple formula of saying, what's the highest and best use of you? Asking the question. Then the second question is, what can I do today that brings me closer to my ultimate vision that I couldn't do yesterday? And so everything you do is a byproduct of what you did yesterday that gave you permission to go a little further, a little further. The Shark Tank, if I had never been an investor and partnered with Gary Vaynerchuk, built companies, helped support Resi and incubate Resi, and we sold to Amex, all this, I would have no credentials. Right. But once I did and I proved myself a great investor, the guy who used to run the two NFL teams that I did, Jets, and, uh, and uh, he's not on Shark Tank. The guy used to be a reporter, the guy who helped oversee the, the World Trade Center, he's not on Shark Tank. But the person who built out, helped build those companies gets to be on Shark Tank. The person who got to be on Shark Tank, who did these other things, had permission to have a conversation with Harvard Business School to maybe try to be on the faculty of HBS. Like, so that's why I said anyone out there, it's also a great way to ensure that you're living in a perpetual growth mindset and to always ask the question. It's uncomfortable because if you want to sit down and watch Netflix, you know, and eat popcorn, like don't ask the question. But if that's not the life you want, ask the question. See, I love what you just said about imposter syndrome and what you just said about ask the question, because putting yourself in uncomfortable positions, you don't want to do it. Your brain tries to protect you from that. You know what I mean? Like it literally does everything. What you just said, literally saying, oh, I was going to pretend to have food poisoning, like just to have a good excuse to not do it. Right. And right. I can tell you, I've been there, Matt. I know exactly what you're talking about talking on panels, stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to pretend I'm sick or, oh no, I'm just going to go do that. But you know what? It is a disservice when you tell people like, yeah, it was just, it was easy. Yeah. I, I rocked right? the panel. Yeah. And I talked in public. Yeah. It's super, it's super easy for me. And it really is actually once you get into it, but like at first you're just like, oh man, this is going to be, this is, this is kind of tough. And now we're getting a little meta, but, but yeah. I would say to anyone and you, and it's fun to do analyze the sort of collective presentation from gurus of the redemption story. And you'll see there's always an arc. I had ego or I whatever, or I misjudge. I then stumbled. I have risen again. Let me share. Everyone wants to put the the um, the, the, the foibles and the failures and, uh, and the fallibility in the rear view mirror. Sure. And when they're presenting it forward. And I think it's may, may way more useful to be like, here's me on TV. Here's the reality. Right. Because yeah. that's real life. And, and I, I would just say, it's very subtle, but I know somebody receives a message like you just said, like they're thinking like, well, that's not me. You've got to figure it out. Good for you. I'll buy your book and take Absolutely. your class. But I, I wanted to try to do something a little bit different. I wanted there to be no redemption in the end. Mom still dies. I'm still not over it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Shark Tank, you would think, oh, he's wealthy. Why, why would he be worried about it? I still was. It makes no sense. And to your point about, I've been thinking about this a lot too, trying to isolate the areas in my life um, where I'm being oppositional for which I actually have no choice and try to take away my free will more than give myself free will. Right. So like you were saying, you have a burn panel, the boats. right? Burn the boats. And then, but also use, use free will is for, and burn the boats is for areas that require creativity and break to break out success. Sure. 
atomic habits is for areas where it requires repetition. So I am now constantly auditing an obligation and saying, is that something for which I truly have no choice? Then I should impose a super ego that says you have no choice. Like you're in prison, like you're gonna, you're doing that. And I think that actually makes things a little bit easier is to toggle between these two new two systems of don't be oppositional for that, which is already inevitable that you've decided and be oppositional for that, for which requires breakout success, resist habits for that type of work. And that's what really burn the boat speaks to is the areas that don't require or don't actually ha manifest through repetition and habit making. Right. And when you say repetition, that just means be consistent, show up, keep showing up. Even when it's hard, show up, keep going. Yeah, exactly. And like, like I, I love atomic habits, but if you sort of dissect what it's really sort of saying, it's like trying to hack the codes around habit making so that you could string up a series of repetitive actions, right? Like Absolutely. anyone knows, like, for example, just make it easier. If I want to lose weight and I've always dealt with my battle, my weight my whole life, I simply have to enter everything I eat into my fitness pal, the mere act of that study shift. We'll, we'll, we'll do most of the work. I have to walk 10,000 steps a day and I lift five times a week. That's it. Yep. Better if I don't revisit whether I should do those things every day. <laughs> right? I should just be like, True. listen, face, like a 30 answer. Like, why are you even debating it with me? Whoever that super ego is. We're in the boats, though, is for things like, man, I want to be on Shark Tank. There's no repetition, no habit that gets you on Shark Tank. There's no habit that gets you on, on Harvard Business School. Now, we could use hindsight bias to say, well, yes, it's your habit of like trying really hard, <laughs> you know, that's not a habit. So that's, I, I've been meditating more about these two different motivational systems and try to take away free will where free will is useless. Yeah, that is amazing. That's an amazing way of uh, looking at it. And most people definitely fall. I mean, I would say 100% of people have imposter syndrome at some point. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're doing something new, you are in theory an imposter at that, or at least that's what you think until you get good at it. It's all about I love that. I say that all the time. I say, yeah. I say, actually, if you want to really understand it, there's a cousin of imposter syndrome called, you know, uh, uh, interloper, right? You're yeah. an interloper into a new context, either technically or, or, you know, metaphorically, but therefore you are an imposter because yeah. you haven't done it yet. I was an imposter on Shark Tank. So people who either you're a sociopath or, you know, God gave you tremendous level of self-possession that you don't have it. The rest of us do. <laughs> Unfortunately, women acknowledge it more than men, which I also think is a lie. So, you know, it tends to be something because they're just I, I find more honest about it. But I, I wanted to spark a conversation about it with the book. Nice. Yeah, I have a I have a quote of my own. I hate quoting myself, by the way, but it just goes well with this. It's like show up where you don't belong because one day you will. You know, yeah. in your mind, and it's all in your yeah. mind. It's not that's what Damon was. That's what Damon. Yeah. That's why Damon John told me. You know, you are you are here because you be, you belong here because you are here. Exactly. There is no arbiter of belonging. So in true. The universe. There is none. Uh, you know, and almost ninety five percent of the situations and places you're going to be, there is no final arbiter. You just sort of show up, and everybody's like, "Who invited you?" First is like, you know, now it's weird energies change, and after a while, you're part of the energy. That's wow, Matt. You're you're inspiring, man. Have you ever done a TED talk or anything yet? No, I have not done. I think you need to do that, man. I can get a TED talk. I don't know how one gets a TED talk. I, I can tell. I can seriously. I can tell you how to get a TED talk. That's yeah, actually, quite. Yeah, easy. I haven't focused on it. As everyone keeps saying, you need to do a TED talk. I'm you like, do. You do. You're really good. So thank you. Want to give you a heads up. So my question. So you work. So a lot of people are going to watch this and go, Gary V. Gary V. You know, you already know that they're going to be like, oh, he's partners with Gary V on things. 
So you've invested, or are you an investor with Gary Vee? Like, how does that work with? Uh, yeah, we um, we uh, the, you know, the quick Gary Vee, not to repeat the whole thing, but I yeah. met Gary at a bagel store when you when I was running the New York Jets, and we kind of cut a deal to give him eight Jets tickets to make the uh, the New York Jets the first client of Gary Vaynerchuk. The Nets try to take credit for that too, but I, I definitely was <laughs> first. So we, the Jets were, I was. Um, and then when I partnered up with Stephen Ross, who's an amazing entrepreneur, um, went back and acquired a significant minority stake in the firm. I, I, and to this day, we are the only partners in the firm and the firm is now massive uh, worldwide employees in Asia, you know, over 2000 employees. Uh, but I was there from day one with a few Jets tickets. That is amazing. What a great, yeah. what a great story. It really is. I mean, you know, what's funny about it though? Like there's not a single aspect of how it's all played out that I didn't think it would play out like that. And it's not because I'm Nostradamus. It was just sort of the writing was there, you know, Gary, great ability to predict works hard. You know, it, it all kind of made sense. So I could pretend like, Oh gosh, can't believe we're here, but I thought we'd be here. I thought he'd be here. Forget about me. I mean, he's, he's definitely really, I mean, he is literally the, the ideal Mr. Uh, if you either promote yourself or you work for somebody who promotes themselves, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you make the choice and another reason why you should have something and you should go after your dreams. Cause, and then also focus on promoting yourself. Don't be shy of promoting yourself. Cause that's really important. That's something I'm trying to get past right now. Like even doing this is brand new for me. Like, so I'm, I'm looking forward to like making this a, a regular thing. Good for you, by the way. Yeah. Like, like, and, and uh, like you don't understand how much I'm sweating in the background. No, no. But first of all, you ask great questions. Number one, <laughs> number two, uh, when I first started stepping out a little bit, especially around Shark Tank it w and, and being more, uh, you know, uh, more available on, on Instagram, I, I received a lot of hate, uh, behind my back because, you know, at the time CEOs and, and leaders weren't really stepping out and, I had to block it out because I was skating to where the puck was going uh, to invoke Wayne Gretzky. Like I knew that it would become table stakes that leaders have to show up, obviously. Right. Obviously, that yeah. People connect with humans, not. Yes. And, people and, connect and, with humans, not brands. Right. Exactly. So, so, but to this day, so true. interestingly, I still find even students who are looking to start a company, but don't feel they're like, I, I you know, I'm on TikTok, but I don't use it. Or I'm on, I don't create anything. The still majority of people uh, who have an idea or a dream still feel uncomfortable doing it. Uh, and I get that. There are times when there isn't an inauthenticity to it all for me doing it. I'm doing it because it's what you do. And, and, it's, and it, you know, it's hard. And then when I'm connecting with somebody genuinely, it feels good. But the reality is you have no choice. But what you're doing now, you're going through the process. It requires starting to feel like I have something worthwhile to say, you know, like there's an authenticity. Sure. You know, you'll, you'll find your landing spot. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. You're awesome. So what would you, how would you tell people from the book? Like what, what are like some of the good pulls from it? Like, let's just say, let's say, let's, what are the, what's the best yeah. lesson they can pull from it and go, Hey, you know what? This is the best lesson you need to, to learn. And then a couple there, things. yeah, it depends on what your framework, but I, I think it's about, um, it's about opportunity because, mm -hmm. uh, we are often the ones that dismiss our own insights precisely because they're our own. And one of my favorite pieces of writing is from um, Emerson. I return to Emerson all the time throughout my life. But the number one thing I return yeah, to is read, read like 100 times is this essay called Self-Reliance. And it talks about the, um, the indignity of being forced to accept your ideas from another after you dismiss them because they were your own. So anyone out there remembers watching infomercial infomercials or, and you know, middle of the night, you're like, wait, I had the idea for the, the for the, uh, the potty, you know, whatever, whatever the, the squatty one. Potty. Yeah. Squatty potty or, you know what I mean? Like, like we've all experienced a product that we also thought about and, 
And those are very important insights. You shouldn't be like, oh man, like somebody else did it. It's like, no, you still didn't know they did it and you invented it in your mind. That's exactly. that's that's confirmation. And so, so opportunity, and I would say, arise before the tipping point of evidence, right? And you have to train your mind to act on opportunity before the tipping point of evidence. Most of us, because we are insecure or, you know, we, or frankly, sometimes we're lazy. We have an, a, a spontaneous insight that we think are like, wow, this could be, this could be like a business or a promotion or whatever, a different way of doing things. And then we seek out evidence to support it, to give us permission. Cause we're told to believe that evidence, you know, is what makes things go right. And sure. typical process is like, all right, I had an epiphany. Now I'm trying to validate it. I asked my friend, Bob, maybe Bob's not the right person in your corner. Maybe you have a spouse who's just unhappy with you. So chooses to fight on this ground, you know, to undermine your idea, whatever it is. Um, and then we abandon them because we couldn't find the validation. And I argue in the book that the best businesses, innovations, decisions in life are actually gut sandwiches. They begin with intuition. And we attempt to support them with a layer of data uh, that, that shows that we're directionally correct. But at the end of the night, the green light comes from intuition. If you think about Steve Jobs pulling out his uh, you know, iPod because he wanted to carry the Beatles in his, back, in his pocket, like it would have been easier to just iterate on the Walkman and have 20 songs instead of 10. But he had an intuition that there were millions of people like him who wanted to carry their Beatles in their back pocket. And Airbnb, like I said before, the sharing economy. So the most important, I'm trying to demystify what breakout success looks like and actually lower the bar. My whole life is about lowering the bar to taking action and the whole burn the boats philosophy and this idea of highest and best use and sort of just just figure it out is an attempt to lower the bar. When I teach at Harvard Business School and I always ask some of the best entrepreneurs in the country, what do you want to tell to the version of yourself? A lot of them had gone to Harvard Business School, but you have a whole room of hundred of the brightest minds. What do you want to tell them? It's like family few and like survey says, survey says 90% say the same thing. You know what they say? Um, I wish I could go back and tell me, like, trust yourself that you'll just figure it out. And they always have the Love same that. version yeah. of that message. And what they're trying to say is like, I worried too much and tried too hard to substantiate the thing that was impossible to substantiate. And in fact, the number one thing I should have been working on is my belief that I will just figure it out. So anybody listening, lower the bar, do the next best thing that moves you closer, do north in the general direction of your ambition and put yourself in situations where you don't have anything more than the next two moves figured out. Yeah, I love that. I, I wanted to teach at Harvard Business School and I was like, I don't know if I can teach for any good, but first I'll get the right to teach, then I'll, then I'll figure it out. You know, I wanted to write a book, right? But I was like, shit, I never wrote a book before. I was like, well, first I have to get permission to write the book or else I won't even have a debate. And I think a lot of people revert to incrementalism because it feels very soothing. Like first I'll get the job as a consultant at McKinsey, then I'll learn business. Then I'll revisit this idea I had three years ago, not realizing by then I'll have two kids and I'll be way more risk adverse. You know what I mean? So right. I know I'm, I'm taking, I'm giving like five takeaways, but I, I'll take them all. What this book, what this book is about, what this book is trying to do. Yeah. I think that's genius. And I, I really think it's uh it's, there are a lot of regrets and I think, you know, some of the biggest regrets are, and, you know, I even spoke to my father recently and he basically said, one of my biggest regrets is not betting on myself sooner. He worked for a lot of other companies. He was a consultant for a while. And then he literally focused on his passion in his uh, late forties. And he was like, man, I wish I would have done that sooner. I would have bet on myself and trusted myself and done that sooner. I had no idea he was going to say that to me. That's great. And I think that's actually yeah. pretty typical for people. And there's a great book uh, written by a, a hospice nurse. And she asked people the five regrets of the dying. And like, I think number one was living someone else's life. Yeah. 
you know, and that's why now to get really, you know, deep, but that's why I have this app on my phone called We Croak. It's a plug for an app for which I never met the creators. I'm waiting for them to reach out to me since all I do is plug them. But, um, and it's five times a day, it reminds me that I'm going to die. A little alarm goes wow, off. Wow, momentum mori, huh? Yeah, and the little little note comes up. Hey, reminder, you are going to die. <laughs> it makes nice. me laugh. And then I open the quote, and the quote's always some poetic, beautiful way to talk that is meant to zoom me into the present. And the reason why that's why why a mortality is so important, because when you hold mortality in your hands every day throughout the course of your day, you will minimize the likelihood, like you were saying about your dad, that you'll defer. You'll be like, ah, you know what? And also the stakes aren't that high. Very little is meaningful against the juxtaposition of imminent death. The things that remain meaningful are personal joy, love of another, you know what I mean? Integrity, peaceful, very little holds up. And it's very important, I think, to, to pressure test all the shit we think about all the time and against the prospect of imminent death because today might be your last day. Yeah, it's so true. Like literally you could walk outside today. Literally, you know, and that's, well, that's why it was a great gift of having cancer. I, always say, I honestly think the cancer is an amazing gift that I had. No bullshit. It's not like me trying to be like, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I got the glimpse. So wait a minute. You had cancer. So you had cancer, right? Tell us I about that. I had testicular cancer when I was, uh, when I was 33. I just had my little baby boy. Wow. It was like a bomb went off. He was only three months old. I had a terrible pain in my right groin. Uh, and then like had my right testicle cut off within 48 hours and they thought it had spread significantly. Right. So it was a period of like, wow. And my greatest thought was aside from like, it's really zeroing on what I wanted my life to be about. But my greatest thought was like, you know, all the shit I think about does not hold up against the prospect of imminent death because I might actually be dying. And the, the brownstones in the New York Times real estate section, the nicer car I'm really trying to get, the promotion, the contract at work, blah, blah, they don't hold up. And yet, yet technically, imminent death is hanging over me right now like a guillotine. But I wasn't aware of it until I got the diagnosis. And so... That once I survived, you know, great. Um, I uh, try to pull it forward because it's very hard to hold on to. Sure. Because it's hard to it's hard to be vested in this institutions that are around us, and you know, accolades and the credit. Like it's hard to be vested in the system if you look at death negatively because you're you'll be like, what's the point? But if you look at death as a as as a way to um, connect with the gift of the present sitting in the car where I used to call it zero time, like who gives a shit about the brownstones, but, but, but the present is beautiful. Then it actually is very empowering. And it's not, people think it's very negative. It's the opposite. It's why the happiest people on earth are living in Bhutan because they think about death five times a day. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of genius. Just like they did in you know, ancient Rome, you know, they had the, yep. they had the Pretty conquering, right? conquering, yeah. The conquering general come in and they had the person in the back, like whispering in their ear every moment. Momento more, you're going man, to die. He does it out of me, but he's just trying to mess with my head. It's not yeah. like Adam. Like, <laughs> Matt, that's amazing. You you come from you have a really amazing story, and uh, man, it's it's crazy. And where tell us um, where can they find the book? Okay, uh, so the uh, the easiest way to find the book is on Amazon. Um, I actually if, uh, did something fun and innovative, which in another year would look uh, completely common. But uh, I trained an AI model on everything to do with the burn the boats philosophy, uh, the military instances, every study I mentioned in the book, um, deeper into that, also every interview I've done, and I trained an AI model called Triton. Um, and the name of Triton is the son of Poseidon, who's had the power to calm the seas. So if you read the book and you feel like the inspiration you had starts to wane or you have a big interview, 
you can go in and try and say, hey, I got a big interview tomorrow. I'm feeling anxious. What should I do about it? And it will talk to you in the voice of the book and me in an amalgam. It's pretty damn cool. So and that's at burntheboatsbook.com. So either go to Amazon, burntheboatsbook.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram under M. Higgins, where I spend a lot of time. Matt, thanks so much for your time today, man. It, re it really uh, means a lot. Thanks for doing it. By the way, keep at it. You ask great questions. Yeah. Like, just thanks. keep doing it. Don't let anybody get in your head. Don't yeah. let anybody who's questioning you why you're doing it. Just say, shut the hell up. Worry about <laughs> thanks. Right. That, means, that means a lot, man. That means a lot. I'm going to keep All doing right. it. All right, um, everyone. Lastly, if you read the book, uh, I'm a human being. I have to resup resupply my, my energy every day and my motivation. I also take incoming, like, why do you care so much? Your DMs where you're telling me made an impact on you, get me going another day. So if you want to pay it forward after you read the book and wish for me to keep evangelizing, send me a DM. I read every one of them. Nice. I love that. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt to have reviews too. So yes. Yeah. And reviews are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Matt, such a pleasure right. again, my friend. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, everyone. See you, Matt. Take care.